Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, September 15th. We begin with a conversation with Dr. Craig Janney, infectious disease specialist with the University of Calgary. We asked Dr. Janney what, in his opinion, needs to be done in this province to help flatten the curve as new COVID-19 cases continue to trend extremely high. Next, it's our monthly segment with Calgary Police Chief Mark Newfeld. We talk with the chief about the CPS's stance on mandatory vaccines among its members and the role the CPS has in keeping the recent hospital protests in the city civil. It's been a hot, smoky summer for us, and aside from the health risks and impact on our summer plans, what effect has the phenomenon had on the glacial ice fields in our province? We get some details from a professor of geography from the University of Calgary. And finally, it's back for another year. We speak with Kirsten Fleming from Run Calgary on what participants can expect from this year's edition of the Calgary Marathon, which takes place this weekend. 6.42, mornings with Sue and Andy here on 770 CHQR. Very excited to have a weekly chat again with Dr. Craig Janney, Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary. Thank you for taking the time, Dr. Janney. Thanks for your flexibility joining us at a different time. We appreciate it. I have to ask you this because we've got some questions. They're starting to roll in. But, you know, it's uh, what I'm looking at the calendar here. Friday will mark two weeks that we've had the mask mandates back in our province. Obviously, you follow the numbers. Mm-hmm. Over 1,400 new cases in the update yesterday. Numbers not moving in the right direction. What would it take? What needs to be enacted to bring these numbers back down, in your opinion? Well, I think we've seen this a few times through the pandemic, and, and the longer we wait, the higher those numbers are, the more transmission in the community, the more broad sweeping those restrictions have to be. So unfortunately, right now, we, we are probably looking at uh, uh, having to restrict some activities in the community, getting people to perhaps stay home or, or at least reduce contact with other individuals. And, you know, the the most effective tool we have seen in other provinces. British Columbia was tracking directly with us in July and August, and they brought in uh, a vaccine mandate for in-person dining and and other indoor activities, and that curve turned. And, you know, those are real-world stories here in Canada, comparable health systems, comparable people, and we can directly look at which activities turn those curves. And right now, we're, we're not using those activities here in the province. And perhaps not surprising, the cases continue to rise. Okay, let's talk about uh, this. This is a study that we heard about this week with um, observing some waning protection against infection around the six-month post-vaccination period, but lasting protection from death and hospitalization. So do you think that we need to get another booster shot? I mean, I know people are getting that third booster if they had mixed doses, but should we start thinking about a booster shot right now if you're sort of six months in? Yeah, so we also saw a report from the U.S. FDA this week, too, that is saying for the average healthy individual, uh, there's really no benefit in that third shot at this moment. Now, that may change as you get out to 9 or 12 months. It may change if there's another variant. But otherwise, for healthy individuals, we are still seeing fantastic protection from disease, and that's really the point of vaccines. What we would anticipate, though, is that as variants continue 
to emerge, that third shot may actually be a, a refresher for the new variants as opposed to simply a third dose of the same vaccine you've already received. So waiting a little longer might might see that different formulation come out. Um, but right now for the average healthy person, we're seeing very clear evidence that there is no additional protection from disease. So that's why we're seeing the US FDA and the World Health Organization recommend against third shots simply because they're available as opposed to a need. Okay. Dr. Janney, we know that the virus can impact children under 12 who do not have the vaccination. And uh, previously, we have talked about a very low impact on their health if they do contract COVID-19. But I'm wondering when it comes to the variants, what can you tell us and uh, what is the current situation with those unvaccinated uh, children and COVID in our province? Yeah, so right now we are still quite fortunate that we don't have a lot of critically ill kids. We do have some, though. We do have some in critical care in ICU here in Alberta. We are also seeing additional cases of this uh, systemic inflammatory response. So kids that are not sick enough to require hospitalization, they're getting swelling of their blood vessels. And again, it's a small number. So we have to remember kids, for the most part, are quite protected. But as cases go up in the community, as more kids become infected, even small percentages translate, unfortunately, to real-world kids needing hospital care. So we need to do the best we can to protect them from the virus, keeping in mind that those under 12 still don't have a vaccine available to them yet. Dr. Janney, um, we know in hospital, 74% and above unvaccinated or partially in the ICU, above 91%. But we always get people who want to talk about to sort of you know, flip the tables and talk about the people who are vaccinated and in hospital. Do we know anything about those numbers in terms of, is there, uh, you know, any commonality between who we're seeing in hospital that have been vaccinated? Yes. So I I think two points here. One is typically the people that are vaccinated in in hospital have some kind of underlying condition that really inhibited their immune response. So they did not respond as well to the vaccine as a a typical person. And those could be older Albertans. Those could also be people that were receiving uh, medication or therapy to help suppress their immune system or people that had a, a, a problem with their immune system due to disease. So these people couldn't mount quite as strong of a response. So as a result, the vaccine works less well in those individuals. But even if we look at the numbers, 10% of the people in ICU have to remember that that is still more than 70% of the province. So the vast majority of people are immunized, and yet they represent a tiny fraction of what's in the hospital. So it's not a 9 to 1. It's actually closer to a, a 20, 30, 40 to 1 in ICU, the, the, showing that there's a 40-fold protection with vaccination when we actually look at the number of people in the community that are in each status. So it is still very, very protective against severe disease. Dr. Janney, we'll go to this text that just came in. And the texter says, studies are showing that natural immunity is 13 times better than vaccine immunity. Why not talk about that? I thought we were supposed to follow the science. Your response. Yes, so natural immunity can provide some protection. Now, the 13% is under the ideal situation. So you're infected with one virus. We challenge you again with exactly the same virus, and there can be uh, good protection. The problem of natural immunity is it has shown to be less protective against different variants. So if you were infected with the UK strain earlier this year and now experience a Delta strain, that protection does not necessarily hold up. 
We also know, depending on how severe your infection was with uh, natural immunity, it fades faster than vaccines. So once again, you have protection, but it doesn't last as long, and you will become susceptible before those that are vaccinated. And perhaps the biggest problem with natural immunity is you have to you know, navigate being infected in the first place, mm-hmm. which can spread it to other people, can cause severe disease in yourself, hospitalization. But even the milder forms of disease, we are seeing a significant number of patients with things like long COVID. And those are all resulting from natural infection and are all avoided if that protection is gained through vaccination. Dr. Jenny, you know, uh, with the only real restriction in place, if you will, it's masks right now in the province. What do you Mm -hmm. say, before we let you go here, people should do to protect themselves and their families in the absence of any other government guidance at this point? Should we be limiting, um, you know, in-person visits in our households? Uh, Should we be going to restaurants still? What are your thoughts? So I think it's up to the individual to mitigate their personal risk. So if everyone in your household is vaccinated and your guests coming over are vaccinated, that's a pretty low-risk situation. But, you know, given that there are lots of kids that are not vaccinated, people go to school, you know, we have to worry about protecting those individuals. So in those situations, going to a restaurant with children unmasked, maybe right now is not as safe as it was in August, given the number of active cases in the community. So I think that the key is to ensure that we are perhaps doing a little bit more than what the bare minimum uh, guidelines from the province are. And we have to make active decisions and understand our own risk, the risk of the activity, and then really weigh those options. So for fully vaccinated people, there there is less risk out there, but it's not risk-free. And, and as more and more people are infected, you will be exposed to that virus all the time. So uh, it, it has, I think, unfortunately gotten back to the point where we have to weigh those risks if we want to keep things, for example, such as kids in school, um, we need to get the viruses down. Otherwise, we will see closures in the future. And that, that's not anybody's choice. It's nothing we're advocating for. It is the harsh reality that there are people on, on hospital beds and hallways and simply not enough people to look after them. Um, we have to get numbers down, and we have to get them down now. As always, we appreciate your scientific information. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Janney. You're welcome, guys. Take care. You too. Have a great day. Dr. Craig Janney is Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary. 7.09 now, and it is time. We have the pleasure of joining the Calgary Police Chief, Mark Newfeld, this morning. He's here with his monthly visit to uh, answer some questions with us here on the Morning News. Good morning to you, Chief. Thanks for being with us this morning. Good morning, Sue. How are you? I'm good. Thank you very much. It's been a long time since we chatted and lots going on in the city, of course. So, uh, you know what, let's start with uh, a vaccine mandate for Calgary police. We've heard it for different uh, businesses, different different organizations. What's the story with that? And, and how are your officers feeling about a potential ruling for, you know, asking officers that they must all be vaccinated? Yeah, that's a good question. We're working uh, through this with the city and our and our medical health experts right now to see what the best path forward is. Um, certainly, our position on this is that vaccines unquestionably provide you know the best protection that we need to get through this pandemic. So, our position is those who can be vaccinated should be full stop. Uh, there are some labor relations issues and this type of thing in relation to that, and so again, we're working through that with our local bargaining units and and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, but I think you know probably the big thing is the vast majority of our um, service are vaccinated, uh, and so we need to you know sort of work through the resistance of the remaining folks 
And I think that's no different than what we're seeing in the community right now. Chief, there's been a real ebb and flow over the past 18 months or so when it comes to cases in our city and in our province. So I'm wondering, you know, what protocols are in place right now for staff when it comes to COVID-19? Are you still seeing some work from home and are you increasing those protocols for those who work, uh, you know, out on the streets with cases over 1,400, uh, you know, yesterday reported new cases? Yeah, I think that's uh, an interesting observation. I think the ebb and flow is probably a good way to... Uh, to um uh, describe what's happened. So we've done that very same thing with our own internal protocols. And, you know, the members have done a great job of, of pivoting uh, the delivery of the service in a way that keeps them and the community safe. So we've seen a total of about 172 cases, uh, positive cases of COVID in the Calgary Police uh, Service. So that's out of a, you know, a, a sample of about 3,000 people right since the beginning. And as of today, we're still very low. I, I touch wood every time I say that because we know how quickly that can change. But uh, as of today, I think we have two positive cases and maybe another one isolating, waiting for test results. So we've been able to, um, uh, managing it the way we have, we've been able to actually be quite successful thus far. And so we'll continue to do that with our main goal to, to uh, keep our folks safe so that they can continue to be there for Calgarians. Chief, over the past couple of weeks, we've seen protests at hospitals around the city. Now, we understand that the organization behind it is is going to not be doing those in the near future anyway. They said they got a lot of anger from people, as you can well imagine, uh, that they don't like that the hospitals were being blocked. But that part aside, what what kind of uh, action is the police, the the force, able to do when, when you see something like that and they're blocking people from getting into a hospital, for example? What, what kind of abilities do the police have at this point? Well, thanks. We use the same tools that we do with any sorts of protests. I mean, getting out and and peacefully protesting there is certainly, you know, protected under people's constitutional rights. Uh, but I think these ones here really had an impact, uh, a very emotional situation at a very emotional time, and the location was extremely sensitive. And, you know, I hope you're right that the organizers have, uh, have uh, you know, taken that to heart and maybe would choose a different location mm-hmm. because um, I think these were particularly volatile because of, you know, the, the groups that are impacted. There's no way that we can allow uh, critical infrastructure like hospitals and, and ambulances to be blocked and for folks not to be able to um, access um, hospitals and healthcare in the way that they, they need to. So there was uh, a very low tolerance for um, what I guess what I would call bad behavior down there, and it did result in a couple of arrests. And as I say, I hope they do take a, a second look at that and, uh, and not return to those locations. Uh, fingers crossed, Chief, that we don't see any... Uh any real reason for you folks to be busy on election day, but I'm wondering if, if this is something, an event like in a, a federal election taking place on Monday, increased traffic around perhaps schools and community halls and, and people's, you know, right now might have some high tensions when it comes to the protocols in place to even go in and cast your ballot. Does the, the police service put plans in place for something like election day? We will. Like locally, we're aware of where the, the voting will take place. You know, it seems like anecdotally it's been a bit of a, uh, a bit more of a, uh, just a challenging campaign. We've heard the complaints from candidates and volunteers, both at the municipal level and also at the federal level, uh, when they're out there, um, they've received a bit of abuse. We've seen the, the complaints from uh, folks about um, signs being damaged or defaced and that sort of thing. And so it just seems like this campaign has had that additional level of nastiness and maybe to do with people's frustration around COVID and and, and where we are right now. But um, it's very important for us to make sure that we're out there and, and allow people to participate uh, meaningfully and go cast their ballots and not to be interfered with in any way. And so uh, we'll certainly be on duty to do that. I don't anticipate a ton of, a ton of issue, to be honest. Uh, but uh, if there is something that comes up, our folks will be there to deal with it. 
I'm wondering, uh, you know, Chief, when we talk to you, it's it's once a month, so we've had a chance to talk to you at the beginning or, uh, you know, in the middle of different seasons and the different challenges that the CPS faces. Uh, what sorts of uh, things are more so on your radar uh, when you move into September and get closer to October and fall? What sorts of trends are you following? Well, you know, typically it would be, uh, you know, the, the things that we used to talk about pre-COVID, it would be return to school. It would be, you know, traffic safety around schools and stuff like that. It would be looking into the fall there and seeing crime trends that change as a result of the change in the weather. So starting to, you know, look at things like Operation Cold Start and, and these types of things to drive down auto theft uh, proactively. But, you know, it, it's been a, uh, a very challenging time. And, of course, with a couple of elections, that's important right now. I think we continue to look at... Um, uh, enforcing public policy around healthcare, and uh, you know we may be uh, potentially looking at uh, further restrictions and this type of thing. And if so, that tends to be falling to the police, and and those are some some new and different challenges than what we've uh, dealt with in the past. So the pandemic's really been an evolving thing for the police service as well, and uh, we continue to uh, to sort of roll with the punches, if you will. But um, like I say, the folks are doing a good job, and and they're committed to to dealing with whatever comes up uh, along the way to keep Calgarians safe. Well, we're grateful for all that you and your officers do. And thank you so much for joining us this morning. Always love talking to you. Thanks, you guys. Have a great day. You too. That is Mark Newfeld, the Calgary Police Chief. It's it's crazy to me that, yes, uh, you know, we, we have people on high tensions when it comes to, you know, COVID right now. For and, sure. And, and they, we've heard so many times on this radio station, it's my right, you know, and, and my rights. Well, we're wearing the mask and these are protocols that some people believe undermine their rights and then you throw the election in mm-hmm. it's your right to vote but you have to wear a mask when you're going in we, we learned this and from you the can't advanced... stop people from going to cast their ballot and you can't stop no. people from getting emergency health care at a hospital so these are the things yeah. that the police service perhaps maybe in a million years in their wildest yeah. dreams would have would have uh, not would have thunk that this would be an issue you're right um you know but uh, this is policing in 2021 and, and the chief seems to that was pretty pretty cool when he gave us the stat of i believe he said and i don't want to misquote him 179 cases so far mm-hmm. out of 3,000 employees that's amazing i think they're doing something right yeah and uh, following those protocols and i'll tell you it's got to be a difficult time because these are your friends and neighbors that might be having an issue with some of these restrictions Tensions are high, Sue. So I don't know what to do. Really? Really? Yeah. Yeah, we've heard that, I think. 609 Mornings with Sue and Andy right here on 770 CHQR. Thank you for spending some time with us. Those COVID numbers, and uh, just full disclosure, Sue, if I can lay it on the table right now, we don't want to talk about uh, COVID anymore. Uh, but, but it's almost it's almost like, you know, dealing with that uh, problem with your car. Eventually, it needs to be addressed. The cases at a 12.18%, almost 12.2% positivity rate, high again yesterday, over 1,400, Sue. And another nine deaths as well. So, you know, the numbers just keep going up and the calls for somebody to do something get louder and louder and louder. 822 people being treated in hospital, 212 in intensive care beds. Of those not in ICU, 74%, 74.1, unvaccinated or partially vaccinated. And those in ICU, 91.2% unvaccinated or partially vaccinated. So you see where the issue is. And we've heard from doctors really ramping up over the past week or so that these numbers are going to get critical and it's going to crash our healthcare system if we don't get things under control. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll have more on that. But in the meantime, yeah, your thoughts, 
what what should we be doing right mm-hmm. now? Text line's always open for you at 403-974-8255. Now, time to switch gears at 611. Wildfires were certainly a hot issue this summer, and it has had a detrimental impact on our glaciers. To talk more about this impact of the wildfires, we're joined by Sean Marshall, glaciologist and professor in the Department of Geography at the University of Calgary. Good morning to you, Sean. Oh, good morning. This is very interesting to me. We talked about the impact as far as, you know, recreation is, you know, when it comes to the the wildfires, obviously, unless you were in those areas, uh, impacted big time. Uh, but it was an inconvenience for many of us and with breathing issues, a major inconvenience. But the glaciers, how, how does this work out, Sean? Yeah, I, it's becoming more and more frequent as, as we've all experienced. These air quality warnings where it's really cutting into our, our outdoor um, enjoyment, I mm-hmm. think. But for the glaciers themselves, it's, it's um, kind, of, kind of double-edged. So this hot, dry weather that brings the fires is also pretty punishing for the glaciers. So they're already having a, a rough summer. So this summer they just got hammered, as you might imagine, with, with the heat dome and this, the ongoing heat. But the, the fires themselves have a lot of uh, ash and black carbon, and, and we call it forest fire fallout that gets deposited on the glaciers. And that, that really darkens the surface, absorbs lots of sunlight, and, and just accelerates their melt. Okay, so explain that to us. So the ash and that, we can understand that that would coat the glacier. Why does that have an impact with the the black coating as opposed to the white of the snow? Yeah, if you've hiked around the Rockies, you probably see it sometimes that these glaciers aren't that nice, nice white ice Mm -hmm. that you maybe see in in paintings or in old images or something. It's not like the bright snow cover. So that the, the ash cover and what we're really looking at a lot is some of the organic carbon fragments and the black carbon that absorbs sunlight like crazy. So instead of the sunlight reflecting back, ah. it, it gets absorbed and then just, that just heats up. So you can actually almost measure the surface temperatures and the near surface temperatures of, you know, way above zero. So, so that's just lots of extra heat and energy mm-hmm. that, that melts the ice. It's something called the albedo, which is how, how effectively the glacier reflects uh, the sunlight. And we, we've done measurements of this where we, do surveys over the glacier of how basically how dark it is, how reflective it is. And this past summer, we thought also in 2017, when we are measuring this reflectance, it actually gets brighter when we come off the glacier onto the rock. So, you know, you've studied it. We know that this is an issue, but can anything be done to combat it? Yeah, that, I mean, <laughs> that's a burning question. Um, the, Pardon the pun. The, <laughs> the, this, these weather systems just are bringing just the forest fire weather to southwestern Canada seem to be every other year now. It's, it's not just a now and again we get this impact. It feels more and more frequent. And so that's just kind of having a, a cumulative effect on the glaciers. They can cleanse themselves. Um, that is, if, if they're getting lots of rainfall or fresh snow melts, that actually... Uh, runs off and freshens the glacier surface a bit, so they can recover from it if you if you give them a, a few years. But if you keep hitting them with fresh fresh ash and black carbon every every couple of years, then it, they're just staying dark. The main place I worked is called Head Glacier. It's it's darkened over the 
20 years that I've been there, so it's having trouble to, to recover, I guess. Now, Sean, I know you do some work with Environment Canada as well, so, uh, I mean, obviously that's something Environment Canada looks at is, is towards the wildfire season and the temperatures, etc. So I, I can't imagine that it's going to get that much better with the way things are. So wildfires are likely going to be a thing we deal with each and every summer, aren't they? Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid that's, that's the forecast. That's what's expected in it. You know, there'll be still some cooler, wetter summers, so it's not going to be every single summer, but the summers like the one we just had, oh, that was exceptional, but bad forest fire summers in southern Alberta, southern BC, look like we should just get used to those. Uh, as long as the climate's continuing to warm, it's kind of like the California fire hazard and the sort of heat you associate with the U.S. Southwest is really moving in, settling into southwestern Canada. So everyone expects that um, these kinds of summers with air quality warnings and lots of forest fire hazards uh, is what it's going to look like for a while. Sean, you know, obviously what you do is super niche and, uh, you know, uh, super unique to, you know, in in our country, uh, when you're looking at Alberta, for example, and different glaciers perhaps, but, you know, not a large, large part of land. I'm wondering if you have any collaboration with other areas across the globe that might be dealing with something similar. Yeah, that's a super interesting question. It's pretty bad in the Rockies because uh, our glaciers there are are downwind of these kind of forest fire zones in Okanagan and and Washington State and the Cascades. So I I feel like we're seeing it there more than some places, but it's also been reported these kinds of forest fire impacts in, if you can believe it, in in Greenland and Arctic Canada and the Andes where they're uh, downwind of some of the Amazon rainforest uh, fires, a lot of that control burning even. They've been some big reports the last couple of years of darkening of the glaciers in the tropical Andes from that. When Australia burned horribly a couple of years ago, then New Zealand's glaciers felt it. So it's actually something um, starting to be picked up, I guess, but it's a pretty recent uh, awareness, I think, that the glaciers are getting a lot of these, these forest fire deposits on them, and it's maybe more global than, than I would have guessed at first, too. Greenland, I mean, you've probably seen some of those pictures of smoke plumes spreading across the continent. Mm-hmm. So you're right, I'm working right now with Environment Canada, so I'm, I'm based in Ottawa a lot of my time, and, and we were in the smoke ourselves here, too, for, for some days this, this summer where we had that, like, eerie red sun glaring down at us where you could, like, stare directly at the sun. And so some of that smoke and ash is actually reaching the Arctic and, and being deposited on Greenland as well. So there, this is kind of a global phenomenon. Sad discussion, but one we need to keep talking about and see what we can do about it. Thank you very much for your time this morning, Sean. Appreciate it. No, really my pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for covering this. Thank you. Sean Marshall, professor in the Department of Geography at the University of Calgary. 8.20 mornings with Sue and Andy. Well, for 57 years, the Calgary Marathon has been at the forefront of running in our country. It's Canada's longest-running marathon and it takes place this weekend. Uh, for more, we're joined by the head honcho of the Calgary Marathon, Kirsten Fleming. Good morning to you, Kirsten. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Let's talk about, you know, a, a bit of a, a bit of a disappointment due to COVID, uh, but back at it, what's it going to look like this year? Yeah, you know, I keep saying to people, it's not going to be the big show that everybody's come to know and love. 
uh, I keep kind of joking that it's the race your granddad used to do before we made these events into massive spectacles with all the bells and whistles. So we're really just focusing on having a safe event where people can run Calgary together and, of course, fundraise for all of these important charities that uh, have never needed it more, frankly. So what people can expect is when they show up on race weekend, they do have to sign up in advance before they come and pick up their package because we're limiting how many people can be on site at any given time. Obviously, everything is mask-on zones inside, and we actually even have mask-on zones outside in uh, areas where it's a little bit more difficult to have that six feet. But, of course, with only 5,000 participants versus the 15,000 that we're used to, we're still taking up that massive footprint at Stampede Park, so there is plenty of space. And I think the biggest change the participants will notice is that we are doing pulse starts, which means instead of one big mass start where you you know have three or 4,000 people in a shoot and we let them all go like a herd of cattle, <laughs> we actually are just doing um, eight to 10 runners every sort of three seconds. So we know that that first wave, it'll take about 13 minutes to get them across the start line. And their start really doesn't, their race and their start doesn't uh, begin until they're, they go over the mat. So it's called chip time, not gun time. So everybody's really running their own race. And again, just focusing on that community spirit and being back together after 28 months. Yeah, oh, crazy. Kirsten, you know, I hear the word marathon. It's very daunting. Do I have to be a professional runner to take part in something <laughs> like this? Absolutely not. And in fact, it's astounding to me how many first-time runners are coming out, um, not just in the marathon, but we have the 5K, 10K, half, and even the 50k and the marathon and the 50k i think people are itching to really test themselves and those have been definitely the most popular um and we're seeing a lot of new runners asking you know questions because this is they've been maybe running for 18 months but this is going to be their first in-person race so our team is doing a phenomenal job hand-holding uh you know those 5,000 participants to get them through a successful race experience and all the changes that have been made but whether you are new to this sport or you are a veteran we invite you to come and participate um there's still about 300 spots okay. in person and probably about 450 total if you include the virtual because that virtual component is still available to people if you're not comfortable um, and you still want to sort of join in on the phone remote join in on the fun remotely um, the virtual component is available and we have 800 participants so my race director yesterday in conjunction with being out and marking the route and taking people on course drives, has been mailing packages as far mm -hmm. away as Australia and Croatia because we have people all over the world that are participating in the 57th Scotiabank Calgary Marathon. You can do it in person. You can do it virtually. Uh, where do we send people to, to sign up and get more? Yeah, well, we would love to send people to volunteer. We're still looking for about 80 volunteers for Sunday, and it takes about 1,600 in a normal year. And uh, this year, we have paired it down to about 1,200, and again, just under 100 left to go. So if you're willing to come out and volunteer, it is outside um, on race day. So um, definitely mitigating any risks and concerns. And we can put you out on the course to wayfind for the, the runners. Um, you can find out all of that information at calgarymarathon.com about where to register as a participant and a volunteer. We'll see you there. Thanks, Kirsten. Thank you. Kirsten Fleming with the Calgary Marathon. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.